Hi, and welcome to episode number two out of five in our podcast mini-series, Investigating Mental Health in Schools. I am one of your co-hosts, Seth Gershenson. I'm an associate professor in the School of Public Affairs at American University and a a K-12 education policy researcher. And I am joined today, as we are every day, with my co-host, Steve Holt. Steve, how are you doing? Good, good. I'm good. Hi, everybody. I'm Steve Holt. I'm an assistant professor at the University at Albany in the Rockefeller College of Public Affairs. And in episode two, the main feature of today's show is going to be a pretty long and wide-ranging discussion with Stephen Guerrero, who's a longtime public school teacher. And we'll get into his background a little bit more once we get him on the line. But we wanted to talk to him for a couple reasons. First, as we'll get into, not only is he a longtime public school teacher, but he also has held a variety of different leadership roles, both in the school and in the local teachers union. So he has a pretty unique perspective on a lot of these different mental health issues facing school personnel, facing teachers. But the other reason we wanted to talk to him, which, which I'll let Steve expound on a little bit, is that, you know, as we said last week, the podcast was really motivated by some of our research using survey data that examines teachers' mental health in the aggregate in the United States and what that looks like relative to other professions and how it's changed over time. Right. But Steve, why don't you sort of dive into the the two issues here? I think one is, okay, you know, the data says what it says, but but we want to see what it looks like on the ground in schools and, and get a, a teacher's perspective that's going to be a little richer than the data. Yeah. So, so when we uh, launched this project, we were building off of uh, a paper that we wrote together that looks at a couple of cohorts of young people as they age into the workforce. And we were able to look at people as they sorted into different occupations and see, well, look, teachers' mental health relative to people in other occupations is actually not terribly different systematically. But you know, this is a very specific measure. And we we have a national data set, but that doesn't tell the full story or paint the complete picture of what mental health actually looks like on the ground in schools. So we wanted to talk to uh, Stephen Guerrero to get a better sense of how mental health affects teachers in their their day-to-day jobs and what mental health looks like uh, in the classroom, among students, among parents, and how these social interactions in schools uh, shape mental health. Mm -hmm. And also, like... Let's just get a, a teacher's perspective on, you know, exactly what should or could be done to improve working conditions for teachers to to improve mental exactly. health. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Right. So I think the the interview is really interesting and and gets at a lot of different issues that are somewhat subtle that that non teachers, non school personnel might not, you know, think about and certainly that doesn't show up in relatively crude survey data. Right. That's exactly right. And more importantly, teachers can provide a sense of what's already being done on the ground, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and he, I think in, in the conversation with Stephen, he, he'll be able to uh, point out uh, different resources that schools actually have and how they've actually been deployed mm-hmm. and what seems to have worked and what also is, is very clearly not working. Right. 
So it can be a useful guide for policymakers thinking about how to improve mental health outcomes among among teachers and and students. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, let's cut to the chase and get Mr. Guerrero on the phone. Hi, everybody. I'm very happy today to have Stephen Guerrero as our guest on the podcast. Stephen is a 20-year veteran of the Needham Public Schools in Needham, Massachusetts, where he has mostly taught sixth grade social studies during that time. He also has an important position as the Vice President for Communications of the Needham Teacher Association, and he is the 2021 winner of the William Spratt Award for Excellence in Teaching Middle School Social Studies. Congratulations on the award, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for asking me. Yeah, I'm really uh, looking forward to our conversation today. We wanted to get teachers' perspectives on mental health in schools and how they see it in their daily jobs. And you're really an ideal person uh, to talk about this, both from your own personal experiences, but also your experience with the teachers' union in Needham and and your collaboration and consultation with your colleagues. So we came across a blog post that you wrote for Education Post about mental health in the pandemic Mm -hmm. and different issues that teachers and students were facing. And to start, I was just curious, how did you get involved with blogging and uh, sharing your thoughts on education posts, and how has that impacted your experience in the classroom and your connection with students and so on? Yeah, that's a good place to start. I focused mainly on social studies as my subject. So most of my kind of professional writing and involvement was focused on things like modernizing the ancient history curriculum. I participate in archaeological digs over the summer and bring back you know professional development opportunities for my colleagues. And I also create lesson units for my students around that. In the last few years, though, I have been getting more involved with the teachers' union specifically, first as a building representative, and then later as the VP for communications. And as part of that, I'm also on the um, contract bargaining team. So I really see a a behind-the-scenes glimpse at the entire district, and Mm -hmm. especially in advocating for teachers. And so... Even before this pandemic, I was very interested, especially in teacher mental health, in that I have seen teachers that I've worked with, both new teachers, veteran teachers, everybody in the middle, kind of see this accelerating stress level that I'm afraid leads to or is leading to burnout. And I I think Mm -hmm. the job has kind of changed over the past 10 to 15 years in a way that I see my colleagues just really kind of giving everything and not having a lot left over for themselves. And I think that also accompanied with my own kind of personal involvement with taking care of my own mental health. And I feel like it's really important to kind of break the stigma, specifically with teachers who often put their student needs in front of everything else. And that kind of taking care of your own mental health can, for many teachers, feel almost self-indulgent in a way that, mm-hmm. you know, can lead them to neglect their own kind of stress levels. And, and eventually it, it creeps up, as we know, it doesn't go away. And so, right. yeah, just taking care of my colleagues and myself, I think, so we can all be there for the kids. Yeah, for sure. 
And that's an interesting point that you made right off the bat. I guess some academics call it co-production in, in schooling, where teaching is unique in that being an effective teacher involves someone else that you don't have full control over, the students. Mm-hmm. And students and teachers and parents and you know everybody has to work together to deliver a quality education and and create opportunities for those students. Yep, um, absolutely. Yeah. And I I would add even you know in talking about the kind of day to day of a teacher hmm. aside from maybe even I don't know acting teaching is such a personality driven job. It's so idiosyncratic in that yep. so yep. much of your success is you know determined by how a very basic level, how extroverted you are, how Mm. empathic you are, how your interpersonal relationships are successful is directly correlated to how successful you're going to be academically with your students and also with them as learners and and just kids. Exactly. And and it's tough to do those things well if you're feeling stressed or burned out or, or dealing with your own mental health issues, for sure. Absolutely. So... Another thing I saw reading your bio and reading your, your blog post was you made a point of, of saying that it's important to have uh, teachers' voices in school policy, in education policy. Yes. You're walking the walk there with your involvement with the union. I'm curious, has your involvement changed at all uh, during the pandemic and, uh, you know, as the world has changed and schooling has changed to, to be more virtual and things like that? Yeah, I would say in the short term, there are certain changes. And then in the long term, there are changes I think we still have yet to reckon with. In the short term, you know, even just putting myself back into the mindset of, you know, March 13th, Friday, March 13th, when basically school was closed, it was supposed to be for two weeks and ended up being you know, the rest of the school year. And Mm -hmm. as a member of the union, I was involved in many, many meetings where first we were just trying to grapple with what is happening. So that kind of sense of not knowing where this is leading, is it a, you know, the, the tip of a tidal wave? Is it kind of something that will peak and go away? There was no rule book. We were basically making this up as we go along. So, mm-hmm. you know, I was very fortunate to be in a district where the superintendent and the leadership and the school committee, you know, really took things seriously and took safety seriously. And I was learning things about HVAC systems and how many, you know, air units yeah. it takes to change the air in a classroom and, and mm-hmm. you know, these kinds of things that we had to learn on the fly and teach over Zoom in a way that we never have before. And so... right. We were negotiating in the moment that we were teaching the health and safety conditions under which we would work and under which we would come back in September. My district Mm -hmm. went back in hybrid mode in September. And then what the academic expectations were for teachers and for students. And and we were getting advice from the CDC. We were getting advice from the federal department of education, the state department of elementary and secondary education, the you know, city, local school board, as well as the board of health. So it took an incredible amount of coordination to kind of filter through all that and come up with a coherent policy while right. we were, you know, meeting with students on Zoom every every morning. So yeah, that definitely, you know, involved teachers really getting to the practice 
of teaching him what that looks like in terms of our negotiations with no rule book, with basically just right. trying to do our best with the information that we had at the time. And I would say, so that was more in the short term. And then as we hit last summer, we were kind of a little bit more planful because we had the summer to think about what that looks like when we go back into, into the class. And so, you know, our, our state, the big districts, the big urban districts in our state had very different considerations than maybe we did as a suburban district, than maybe mm-hmm. some of the rural districts had. And so, you know, where the big districts were worried about just sheer volume of students and, and sheer level of need that the kids had versus our district, which was a little bit more fortunate and privileged in that we had, you know, mostly newer school buildings, mostly family situations in our district that could abide having students home longer. But, you know, it wasn't easy on anyone. And I think some of the long-term impact that we're thinking of is what are some good things that we can take away from our hybrid model? What are some things that we for sure know that didn't work? This probably isn't the place to get into it, but I, I, there's a there's a politicization of the local school making education making policy that I think teachers are only now just getting the tip of, and I think that's going to be our greatest yeah. concern going forward. But that might be for for later in the conversation. For for your yeah. question, you know, here I would say it made impact bargaining so much more direct and supercharged than it ever has been. Yeah. And that's just one of the many ways that the pandemic has changed, I guess, the teaching profession and Mm -hmm. and how teachers uh, approach addressing policy, engaging with policy, but also operating in the classroom. Yeah. So to bring it back to mental health a little bit, Mm -hmm. let's, let's, I know this is hard, but let's try to go back to the pre pandemic normal times. Yep. And I mean, even then, right, burnout, stress, teacher turnover was a real problem in in many districts and many schools around the country. Mm -hmm. On the ground, in the classroom, you know, what were your day-to-day experiences with stress and burnout, you know, either for yourself or with your colleagues? And, you know, was it talked about? Yeah, no, absolutely. So even before the pandemic, teacher mental health and kind of social emotional well-being was a concern for sure and it was not going in the right direction in in mm-hmm. what i saw and so okay. what i would say is you know i'm at a point in my career where i do have you know a, a bit of institutional knowledge going back to you know the the early 2000s mm-hmm. and <laughs> as much as i don't like to hear myself say it because it makes me sound older than maybe i feel you know, yeah. when we were teaching in the 2000s, you know, not every kid had a computer in their pocket. And we had one desktop computer in the back of the room that somebody might earn game time on for 15 minutes if they did a good job. Right. To this environment now where you think about it, you know, students are constantly on their devices. They mm-hmm. are having, you know, new research come out that shows this exposure to devices at such an early age and with such an intensity changes kids' brains in a way that we still don't quite understand. And I think right. that kind of feeling of immediacy, the kind of gamification of the classroom. You know, I consider myself an early adopter of a lot of technologies. You know, I was one of the first in my district to have like a classroom blog or to communicate, you know, through YouTube videos or, or things like that. 
Mm-hmm. I still see, though, technology is something we haven't hit quite the right balance. And I say that knowing that my students have, they're sixth graders, they have one-to-one iPads in uh, my school district. So that means that every student in sixth grade has an iPad uh, provided by the school district that they use and can bring home and that they're also expected to use in school. And that can lead to many really cool things. Like as a social studies teacher, I can use augmented reality to have them look at a 3D model of a Greek ship. But it also means that the same device they're using to play games and that they're using to access social media, we're now saying, okay, shut that part of your brain off. And now it's just going to be an education tool. And that switch doesn't flip off in that way. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a lot of my colleagues are still kind of frustrated by how quickly things move without us kind of doing things planfully. For example, you know, I remember even just 10 years ago, when a kid was being cyberbullied, the response of the school department was, well, that's happening outside of school. Like we, we only deal, unless it's happening on school property, we don't really account for mm-hmm. that. And now, of course, that response is horrifying. You know, if we get a report right. of cyberbullying, we have to act. And I think, yeah. you know, we also have situations where, you know, kids are on social media, they're exposed to so much more than they used to be. They are used to things You know, I mean, teaching is always kind of a performative art, but in this case, you know, they're expecting full flashbang entertainment in the classroom. And I think for a lot of teachers, it's been hard to maintain that. Yeah. It's hard to compete with an iPad. It's yeah. Entertainment. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's really interesting. I'd never, that's, that's fascinating to think about how, you know, one of the unintended consequences of tech in the classroom is that it does make teaching just like it, it makes teaching easier in a lot of ways, like you said, mm-hmm. um, but it makes things hard, right? It makes things different. The world's constantly changing, and so you have to constantly change to keep up with it. You know, I have a colleague of mine who teaches math, and he always jokes, you know, it, we have like four teaching periods in the morning, and he, mm-hmm. he'll he say something funny a kid said or something maybe inappropriate a kid said and be like, you know, it's four live shows a day. And so we're, we're right. all kind of, you know in this kind of mode where when I walk into the classroom in the morning, you know, I have to be there by seven, the doors open to kids at 725. I have to go from zero to 60, right at 725 in the morning. And I got to maintain that until the kids leave. And and so when I think about teacher mental health, I mean, there is a cost to kind of maintaining that super high level of energy and optimism and excitement and, and understanding Mm -hmm. and, you know, social, empathy, yeah. you know, nonstop all the way through the end of the day. And, and right. set aside teachers having, you know, who knows, like a, a parent might pass away or you might be going through mm-hmm. something really tough or you might be yeah. worried about money or a spouse is laid off. You know, yeah. it doesn't matter. Those, those same hundred kids are going to be cycling through your classroom and you have to maintain a level 60, you know, the whole time. And yeah. so I think that's really the root of of what I see in, in teacher burnout and in kind of that trouble yeah. maintaining that stamina. Right. You, you always have to be on. Always have um, to be on. And, and, and teaching is very unique in that. So many other jobs, you know, you can step away and, and have a private moment to mm-hmm. group. And it's really hard for teachers to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and also you're on display. So even yeah. if you're kind yeah. of off to the side talking with another student, you know, if I have 25 kids in my classroom and I'm helping 
you know, one student, the other 24 yeah. sets of eyes are on me and they're looking uh-huh. at how I interact. If a student is acting in a way that's either inappropriate or mean to another student or, or physically mm-hmm. kind of problematic, you know, all those students are watching. The stakes are very high. I mean, I think, I don't know where I read it, but the idea that teachers make a thousand decisions in a day. And I think that really is true. Mm-hmm. Everything feels super high stakes and yeah. you want to get it right. But, you know, you also have your own kind of sets of emotions and, and mm-hmm. things that are out of your control. Like for sure, like the students. Yeah. And, and I mean, a thousand decisions might even be on the low end. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, the other weird thing about it is that it's not always clear in the moment which decisions are the big ones. Yeah. Uh, you know, y- you might only realize that a decision was not great or, you know, consequential five or 10 decisions later. So do teachers talk about these feelings with each other, either in a sort of general sense or, or in a specific you know, acute issue sense. In your experience, did you talk to your colleagues? Did colleagues uh, approach you? I would say both. I I think there's, like any workplace, you have people that you're closer to and people that are more kind of like colleagues or acquaintances. You know, we did talk about these things. It's really a fine line between kind of supporting each other, kind of venting and, and finding funny things that, you know, kids might do that irk you or whatever. But you don't want to cross the line into kind of griping. Or when I, when I first started yeah. teaching, you know, my mentor teacher always told me, don't go to the teacher's lounge because that's where the lounge lizards are. And all they do is, you know, complain and, mm-hmm. you know, they're negative and, and it will bring you down. And, and I understand that. And I have right. really, you know, tried to be a positive voice. But, you know, when you have four people who are kind of super stressed out, most often teachers mm-hmm. are very high performing. So they're very critical of their own work, yeah. you know, I think there's a point at which it becomes unhelpful to kind of vent with your colleagues. And I think sure. that's where we get into the conversation of kind of outside help. But I would say I'm very fortunate yeah. in that I work with teachers that I'm very friendly with. And so we always talk about like somebody will come in and want to say something funny and say, okay, this is in the trust tree. And we all know like, you know, because we do have that trust in each other, we can vent mm-hmm. in a way that, you know, is cathartic, but is also not something we would want to share with, you know, the outside that we kind of have this shared right. experience that gives us all this language we can use to communicate. Yeah, for sure. No, venting can be very cathartic, but it too much of it, I guess, can can lead to sort of a toxic atmosphere. Definitely. And, and you sort of hinted at, at I, I guess, the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is, when there is a teacher who's really struggling, whether for whether related to in-school problems or, or personal issues outside of school, what sorts of problems does that cause in the classroom? Does that spill over to students? Does it spill over to, to colleagues? What are the consequences, I guess, of, of, of teachers struggling with, with these mental health problems or concerns or stresses? Yeah. And I think, you know, I'd say one of the hardest things for teachers to do is to recognize when they are struggling, mm-hmm. specifically with mental health. And I think that yeah. we are also kind of 
charged up in a way like nobody goes into teaching i I should say (laughs) almost nobody goes into teaching feeling like you know i'm just going to grind this out like people go into teaching because they love the kids they love their subjects they really get excited about sharing the knowledge that they have at a deep level but i think yep in order to kind of be in a job that is like that and i'd put that in the category of like you know, my mom was a nurse and, you know, she had a very similar kind of attitude of give, 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 you know, do everything for everyone else, you know, skip lunch if I have to, or work late if I have to, go in early if I have to, work at home grading papers, because everything that's me that says I want to do a good job, I want to pour into the work. And so the first thing that I do notice is that teachers often are much more stressed out and exhausted than they even realize. It's almost like how people say, by the time you feel thirsty, you're already way dehydrated. And so yep. I think it's that kind of thing where sometimes it takes somebody from the outside, sometimes it's a spouse or a family member, sometimes it's a yep. trusted colleague or especially a mentor when we're talking about younger teachers uh, in the first like five years or so of teaching to say like, it's okay to step back. It's okay to you know, not stay until 7 p.m. making a lesson plan. I mean, one of the most valuable lessons that mm-hmm. I learned as an early teacher was I, I worked with this brilliant, very caring mentor teacher. And she said to me, you know, Steve, you, you have to take care of yourself first, because if you don't yep. take care of yourself, you're not going to have anything to give to the kids. And so we were talking about another colleague, a young teacher whose car I had noticed when I was leaving the school at like 7 p.m. And I said, oh, this teacher's here so late. And the mentor teacher said to me, you know, that teacher might stay till seven tonight on Monday and they might have a slam bang lesson on Tuesday. That's amazing. And the kids are excited and awesome. They still have to plan for Wednesday, Thursday and Friday and the week after and the week after that. And and that's not sustainable. And so I think, you know, per- right. perfectionism really goes hand in hand with teaching. And, and I think yeah. teachers really set themselves up to have a kind of mental exhaustion that we need to address outside yeah. of the school environment. And, and you think that might be something that's unique to teaching, that drive for perfectionism? Yeah, I, I think other kind of... Relatively unique. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think, you know, I'm sure people in the medical field and, and people with high stakes jobs like that have a I certain kind of Other stress. people depend on you. Other people depend on you. And I think, right. you know, we all can think back to both extremely life-changing interactions we've had with a teacher or if I said to you like Mm -hmm. think of the worst moment you had as a kid in a classroom you know yeah we all have kind of those moments burned into our brain or think of that moment when you thought oh my god like this is so amazing this opened a new world to me you know those moments don't come with like music they don't come with like super lighting they are all the time and so We're Mm -hmm. trying to be at that level 60 for our kids all the time because we know that even the smallest interaction can be so impactful to our kids. You know, we we just really want to do our best and to, yeah, just imprint on the kids everything good that we want to. And that's really hard because you're not your best at every moment of the workday. Right. So... When you do notice a colleague that that might be struggling, or, or when you yourself might feel like you're you're struggling or or treading water, mm-hmm. what should happen? What or you know how might you help a colleague? 
what do you wish mm. school leadership provided you like how can we how can we help teachers out yeah yeah so i would say for sure you know i'm very fortunate in that i work in a public school district we have a service called an eap an employment assistance program and okay. you know i would i feel very free to share like 10 years ago i was in that place i was in my maybe ninth or 10th year teaching i didn't realize it at the time but i was you know close to the verge of a burnout. I was doing all the committees, all the after school stuff. I was teaching, you know, right. even Saturday class. And the year began and the second day of school before the kids came in around seven in the morning, I had a full blown panic attack in the classroom. Just, and you know, I don't know if hmm. if you've experienced them or, or if any of your listeners have experienced panic attacks, you know that it's not about logic. It feels like you're going to die any second and you don't know why. Right. It, it's yeah. completely physiological and it takes over. And I had never uh -huh. experienced that before. And it was really frightening. And so, mm -hmm. you know, luckily I was able to take a couple of sick days. My administrator, you know, was very understanding. And she and I have a good working relationship. And so I think that's step one is that I had a relationship of trust and not judgment with my administrator. The yeah. second thing is I had the ability to take the day off and she could say to me, you know, we have coverage, like I can get somebody in here, you know, it'll be okay. Your colleagues, you know, who teach on your cluster can help with lesson plans, like just, you know, you need to take care of yourself. That was very helpful because of course, you know, it, it doesn't help to be on a panic attack you know, break and also feel like, oh my God, I left my kids in the lurch with nothing, you know, to do. And then right. finally that I did have the resources of the EAP, the Employment Assistance Program, where I could go to a licensed counselor and, you know, that person, I had five free sessions and we sat down, it was not affiliated with the school district. So this was an outside provider, which is important mm -hmm. because, you know, I, I wouldn't want, you know, my most personal kind of private interactions with a social worker to be something that I would worry about going back to my administrator. And so, you know, I, we sat down, she said, okay, what are your goals for our five sessions? And, you know, I talked about it, reduce stress, have a better work-life balance, and also to kind mm -hmm. of find a person for more long-term mental health care for me, like a, a counselor yeah. that I really trust that I build a relationship with and that can kind of sustain me for the for the longer term for the school year and that was really life-changing for me both in my career and in my personal life you know i had never uh -huh. accessed mental health resources i i think looking back you know i i yeah. was right in that number of men who were raised to believe like you know you're you don't cry and your emotions stay behind a wall and you know you, you shouldn't bother with them and mental health is only for people who are in crisis and you know, breaking down those myths really helped open up a world of help to me that I wouldn't have otherwise realized. And that made all the difference. For sure. Yeah. yeah. And just the fact that your school had this EAP that made yes. them help available. Yes. And it was paid. Um, it was free for me. And it was paid yep. through the school district. And that I know I'm very privileged to have. But it's, it is something that was yeah. bargained between the teachers union and the school district that's part of the contract. And so I think yeah. right there you have an avenue for kind of building a support in place that's yep. very tangible and that's very kind of 
teacher focused. So it's not the school district. It's not a guidance counselor yeah. or a profession, HR professional in the district. It's a licensed social worker who can really, yeah. you know, um, yeah, I think that's for you. Uh, it's an important point you make that the, the value of having it be a truly outside confidential counselor. Yes. And a professional experienced in, in working with teachers. Yeah. Who, who knows how to, who knows what to do. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yep. So not all districts have that. That's correct. Class. So when we get to thinking about, you know, what sorts of policy changes would be beneficial, Yep. it seems like that is a, a very reasonable place to start that different unions and, and schools and districts should seriously consider. My guess is that it's a very cost-effective program too, because it there's a good chance if, the, if those five sessions weren't there, you might have left the profession. That's true. We know how we know how costly it is to recruit new teachers. Yes. Um, and even so. more than that, I would say in the shorter term too, you're talking about, you know, many days of absences that need to be covered mm -hmm. and paid by per oh, diem, yeah. Yeah. you know, substitutes, which is even more costly. Right. You know, putting this support in place is also tied to kind of like a district's health plan. And so I know that a lot of uh -huh. public districts generally, I mean, the direction is probably not going the right way, but offer good health coverage and that behavioral health, that mental health is health. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, yes. in my health plan, for example, you know, I, I pay a small co-payment, but I have very good coverage for behavioral health services. And that's really important because if you're talking about somebody who needs help or consultation on a weekly or a bi-monthly basis, you know, those can add up really fast. And I think that covering those, just as you would cover someone you know, who has diabetes and needs insulin or that, you know, needs physical therapy to recover from an injury. In the same way, we need to fund and advocate for behavioral health services as part of our health plans. Yeah, absolutely. That, that makes a lot of sense. The other thing that your, your story made me think about is people have talked about the idea of having mental health days mm -hmm. or recovery days or, or whatever you want to call them. Mm -hmm. You know, one way to do it is is like you say, if we if we if we seriously view mental health the same way we view physical health, mm -hmm. you know, you could take an, an absence for a mental health day or, or a recovery day. Mm -hmm. But as we all know, teacher absences impose costs financial for the subs, and then if you can't find a sub, there's complications for your colleagues in the school. Yep. So, you know, that's the one way to do it is to broaden absences to include mental health days. Mm -hmm. But the other idea is to maybe think about just, you know, once a month or so have an in-service type day that, you know, rather than sitting in, in professional development meetings all day is, is a true personal day. Mm -hmm. Is that something that is, you know, on the table or, or ever considered? We talk about this a lot too, like professional development and also with this last year in the pandemic, you know, teachers have had a lot more freedom to, for example, we were teaching in hybrid mode. So we were, teachers were full time in the building from September uh -huh. until the end of the school year. But things like faculty meetings, we could either participate in through our laptop in our classroom or go home and participate from home. And I think that kind of structure was really helpful and gave people the flexibility that they needed to kind of deal with all the craziness and, and changes of the pandemic. What I think, though, is, yeah. you know, days off are tricky to talk about, I think, because, you know, a lot of outside 
the profession folks look at teaching and say, well, you have the summer, you know, you have February vacation or April vacation. And so like, what, what's the big deal? Like, and I think what is missing is that the intensity level of being with a room full of, for me, 11 year olds, you know, from 720 in the morning until, you know, 230 in the afternoon doesn't mean that it's confined just to that time. So I'm preparing in the afternoons or I'm using my weekends to grade papers, things like that. Yep. I think what you're going to get if you mandate kind of personal days or, or something like that is especially younger teachers using that time to work on classroom materials, to, you know, focus yeah. on their classroom. And I think what what is really valuable is someone in the profession that is trusted to say, you need to take care of yourself first, or yep. you can let me know when you're feeling stressed. Or even just, yeah. I'll give a very kind of concrete example of a colleague really taking my stress level down a notch. We were in a professional in-service and they were introducing all these new kind of programs we can use in our classroom, all these new um, iPad apps. And some of them mm -hmm. were paid by the district. So, you, you know, you're feeling like, okay, like I want to use this. I want the district to really get their, their money's worth and I want the kids to get the most of it. And I was really feeling overwhelmed by the time we got to like the fourth or fifth kind of application that we were being shown. And a, a colleague of mine took me aside and was like, you know, Steve, I just want you to remember this. Because I, I was saying like, I don't know how I'm going to use all these things. I have to learn how to use them. I have to implement them with the kids. I have to, you know, get their feedback and reflect and change based on that. And she said, we work in a cluster. So I'm a social studies teacher. I work with the science teacher, the English teacher, and the math teacher as a group. Uh, along mm -hmm. with the special ed liaison. And she said, you know, Steve, we're a team. And you're seeing your classroom as an island. But you have to remember, you know, the kid who's sitting in your classroom in 45 minutes, they're in my classroom. And 45 minutes from then, they're going to be in the math classroom. And so yep. if you do one of these programs we're learning, and I do one of these programs, and the math teacher does one of these programs, these kids are having a very busy day, and they're getting exposed to a lot of different kinds of learning. And so you just have to remember, you don't have to be all the things to all the kids. You're, you are part of a larger system in which we're right. all working for the same goal. And so as long as we coordinate, you know, and I know that I'm very fortunate in that in the sixth grade has that cluster form. I know for my elementary colleagues who have to teach all the subjects, you know, that's really hard. You know, it, it's really, yep. you know, designed in a way where all the onus is on them. And so... I think that the more we can kind of come at this as a collaborative approach, the more that we can foster trusted relationships where people feel free to say, I need help, is one of the most fundamental things that we can do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, breaking, breaking down the stigma, for sure. Yeah. And not and, letting... And some of that's not unique to teaching. I mean, the, the, the stigma around talking about mental health, mm -hmm. you know, is, is certainly broader than teaching, but but teaching is unique in a lot of the ways that we've talked about. Yep. I would also, if I, I just yeah. want to add one more thing to that, which is, sure. you know, now teaching and the education profession in general is getting better at recognizing things like trauma-informed education. But what we haven't done is really look at what I've read is secondary trauma. So, you know, I might have a student who you know, we might have to file a neglect 51A for the child to get care or involve, you know, the Department mm -hmm. of Family Services. I might also have a student who, you know, is misusing kind of their chat feature and they're having 
at 11 years old, the most troubling, problematic communications with other students. And I might also have a student who's, you know, using slurs or myself as a gay man, I might have students using, you know, slurs against other students that that are Mm -hmm. hurtful to me. And so I think that, you know, when I go home and I'm thinking of that 11 year old who is clearly, you know, suffering abuse or who is saying Mm -hmm. things that's abusive to other students, you know, that's not normal, but it's a normal part of the job because every year you have students like that. And so we have not reckoned with how do you have a teacher exposed to both the best and the very worst of kids and families and what they're going through and kind of have like this protective layer. Because if you take everything very personally in the way that most teachers do, you know, you feel for that kid, you want to help that kid, you want to change their life into a different direction. Yes. You know, that takes a toll on your mental well-being, I think, in a way that we haven't even kind of explicitly talked about as a profession. I fully agree. That's a a very deep insight, I think, that people go into teaching because they want to help, they want to save kids, and you're not always going to save everybody. Yeah. And also reckoning with... It's hard for, you know, hard for people to, hard for us to deal with as as humans. Yeah. And and for teaching, you know, you have so much in your control. Like I can run my classroom, I can set the expectations, I can design these really engaging lessons to get the kids into. But... Mm -hmm. You know, if a kid goes home and, you know, that 11-year-old is responsible for making dinner for two younger siblings, or if that kid goes home and no one's home and they have full access to the internet with no adult supervision, I don't control that. And so when the consequences of that come into my classroom, I Mm -hmm. am left feeling both powerless and feeling kind of responsible. And and that's a hard thing to reconcile. Absolutely. Well, so we're we're nearing the end of our time. This has been a, a very, I, I think, insightful and uh, helpful conversation that I hope our listeners also, you know, find helpful and you know uh, can use this when thinking about what they're doing in their own districts and mm-hmm. and as parents what they're doing with their with their students. To sort of wrap it up, most of what we talked about, I would say, is not unique to the pandemic. A lot of these issues have been around in teaching uh, for a long time. Yes. But let's, uh, as as we bring it home, let's talk about how, if at all, have things changed, maybe permanently, maybe just for the next couple years? How has this whole pandemic, there's these newfound pressures on parents at home that might rub off on students, that students might bring to the classroom, mm-hmm. you know, as teachers, you know, we have concerns of our own about our our own families and so on. Mm -hmm. How has the pandemic changed any of this calculus? What should we be doing as we move forward in the next couple of years, do you think? I think that's a really good question. And the answer is really complicated. But I would say, you know, we as kind of a culture and a society, when when the pandemic hit, it rocked us so hard to our core that it made Mm -hmm. us realize a lot of things that we had taken for granted. And it's kind of energized and empowered people, I think, in a way that reacts to that that reality. And so one example is that when the schools closed, a lot of communities realized that 
many students were getting two out of their three meals a day from their schools. A lot of communities were realizing that a lot of kids only had access to high quality books through their school or had access to mental health counseling, like a guidance counselor mm -hmm. through their school. That schools internet. were, internet, absolutely, that schools were on the yep. front line of screening for abuse and neglect and that schools were at a very fundamental level, the structure that as a middle school teacher, like one fundamental truth I know is that all kids crave structure. They don't know how to express that. They don't know that, but mm -hmm. their safety is directly related to kind of predictability. And, and what I mean in that is that, that five days a week, they know what they do. They get up, they go to school, they know what to expect. They know where to go. You know, some yeah. classes they might not like, whatever, but they do know that there's a general expectation. And they also know that they can take for granted that that environment is organized and monitored in a way that kind of the free-for-all of kids playing outside doesn't have. So, for example, there are expectations in the classroom and the way kids are supposed to speak to each other and the way that they're supposed to act, take turns. When you take all that away... I think mm -hmm. parents, families, and communities realize how much is lost. And I hope that in realizing that, they realize how much is at stake in our schools. And that mm -hmm. having our schools be places not only of learning, but of child development by professionals who can help guide kids to be good citizens, good people, empathic human beings, I think mm -hmm. is just so important and such kind of a larger commitment that the, that the community has. I mean, if you think about someone's average lifespan from birth to death, at no other point does society, the community, have as much input and as much at stake as they do in school. And so that is the place where kids are not only developing as people, but we're developing, what does it mean to be part of this community? You know, how do we take care of each other? What is the value we put on learning, on empathy, on curiosity? And I think that in the way that kind of, you know, the isolation of the pandemic has really affected people, what has also affected people is kind of looking in a new way at how powerful schools are. And, you know, mm -hmm. unfortunately, that's not all positive because as we're seeing, you know, just like health, you know, schools can be politicized as well. And I think one of the things that teachers will encounter in this coming school year that is supposed to start in a few weeks is a more active, vocal segment of the community really looking at what they're doing, sometimes with best intentions and sometimes not. And teachers, I think, are going to feel on guard in a way of what they're saying in the classroom, of how what they're saying is perceived by the community in a new way. And yeah. so I think for all those reasons, school has become much more in the spotlight. And what I really hope yep. is that, you know, we can get people of goodwill to really think about what are the ways that we can support our teachers, that we can support our kids, and that we can make sure we don't repeat the mistakes of the past, so we don't continue the negative trends, that we can kind of arrest those and move them in a positive direction. So when we were seeing more behavioral right. issues in school, or more instances of ADD or ADHD, or more diagnoses of kind of social and emotional dysregulation. I think that's not an accident that those numbers are going up 
just as we are paying more attention to the importance of social and emotional learning beyond academics. Mm-hmm. And that carries over yeah, to all segments of our society. Oh, absolutely. I mean, almost the politi- politicization, politicization of almost everything. Yep. That reminds me, th- there's this whole other, you know, growing pressure on teachers that you hinted at, which is, you know, how do you talk about the recent election? Mm-hmm. How do you talk about January 6th? How do you talk about the vaccine? How do you talk about systemic uh, racism? You know, yes, absolutely. How do you talk about different police brutality incidents, police violence incidents? So I, I think you're right. There's, and, and maybe this is another way that teaching is unique in that everybody or, or almost everybody went to school at one point mm-hmm. and were on the other side of the classroom. Many people uh, had a child uh, in school at some point. Mm-hmm. And that that does make teaching unique in another way that everyone, you know, everybody has an opinion about it. Yes. This increased interest, hopefully much of it is in good faith, but I I share your concern that there is some bad faith interest in you know watching and and trying to regulate what teachers are are talking about and how they're talking about these current events in their classrooms. Yep. And uh, and there are segments and the issue is that they're often the loudest voice in the room looking for Mm -hmm. mistakes, looking for that in, looking for that kind of viral moment that they can grasp onto and then project all that they want it to be onto it. And I think, you know, Mm -hmm. just as teachers are so aware of the stakes when they interact with kids, hoping that kids have a positive experience in school and in their classrooms, they're also Mm -hmm. going to encounter even higher stakes when the outside community is kind of scrutinizing what they're doing, I think in a way that has not been done before. And I I think, I fear that that's going to lead to even more kind of burnout teachers being like, well, I don't need this, you know? And and I think, I think this summer has been from what I've seen a real kind of moment of reckoning for a lot of teachers, kind of Mm -hmm. a real examination of, is this the job that I see myself in long-term in Mm -hmm. the direction that it's going? And, you know, I don't think we'll know the real answer to that until a year, two years out. And we see what the retention rates look like. We already know that a significantly high percentage of teachers leave the profession in the first five years. And, you know, part of that might be teacher prep programs, part of it might be teachers realizing this isn't the job that's right for me. But I think a big yep. part of that is teachers really thinking, you know, this, this is not worth it. This is this is not worth my mm-hmm. my well-being in this way. Yeah, unfortunately, I think that's right. So to wrap up, then we talked about some some things that districts and school leaders can do mm-hmm. to try to retain good teachers yep. to try to keep teachers feeling good about the job and and up to the task and having good work life balance and those you know some of that's having good mentors that that give that advice and give that friendly ear to mm-hmm. hear hear what's going on the other big thing is this idea of providing external help when needed with the EAP providing a counselor to talk through problems. Mm -hmm. And ideally, like you said, you're not, uh, if you're thirsty, it's too late, you're already dehydrated. Right. Maybe even provide those counseling sessions before there's a crisis, before there's a dire need for them. Mm -hmm. And these are things that I guess teacher unions can 
ask for. These are things that districts and, and schools can try to provide. Is there, is there any other advice or, or key point you want to leave our listeners with? Yeah, I think I would say we invest in our teachers, you know, so much responsibility in terms of caring for and developing our kids, the future of our society. And so mm-hmm. we need to make sure that we have teachers who are mentally, you know, taking care of their well-being, who have the supports that they need, and that especially the teachers realize, you know, it's not all on an individual teacher, that, you know, we are in this together, that this is something that it's a team approach and that the community at large has your back, that the community sees what you do, that they value what you do and that they support what you do. And I think that goes for administrators, especially to develop trusting relationships Mm -hmm. with the people they work for. And when I say trusting, I mean, if a teacher is comfortable enough to go to an administrator and say, I need help. That's the measure of a good trusting relationship. If an administrator feels like, I don't know that my teachers would say that to me, that needs re-examining. And I think finally, mm-hmm. you know, we have an elected school committee in our town, and I think they are ultimately the voices of the community. And as long mm-hmm. as you are open and honest with your school committee or whatever the, the representative of the community is, to say, like, these are the issues we're facing. This is the help that we need. When we were talking about during the pandemic, you know, air exchanges per hour in the classroom, we knew that was a matter of life or death or spreading disease or controlling disease. And I think having that sense of urgency not wane after the pandemic does is really important, that people realize how important our schools are and how important our teachers are to those schools. Yep. Well said. And and we, the public, can, you know prove that we value teachers by investing in them in, in all the ways that, that you've said and, and we've talked about. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. I really appreciate the honesty and, and sincerity and that you brought to the discussion. Thanks again. We're going to link to your blog on the, on, the, on the website and hope to talk again in the future. And our guest today has been Stephen Guerrero, a sixth grade teacher in Needham Public Schools. And thanks again for joining us. Thank you very much.